La 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 fork. Okay, hi. Sorry, no theme song today. It's Alonzo, and Dave and I are thrilled to make this episode of Linoleum Knife and Fork available to everybody because we're so thrilled about our guest today. Not just our dear friend Margie Rockland, the spoon of Linoleum Knife and Fork, but. Uh, with her New York Times bestselling cookbook, Nancy Silverton is joining us. The book is... The Cookie That Changed My Life and More Than 100 Other Classic Cakes, Cookies, Muffins, and Pies That Will Change Yours. Uh, that's a big promise, but I believe it coming from this woman. Welcome, Nancy Silverton. Welcome. Well, you know what? I have a quick question to ask you. Um, Shoot. And you may know more than... I know. So once you make it to the New York Times bestsellers list, are you a New York Times bestseller forever, even though you may have only been on it a week? I can't tell. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, heaven knows it'll, if I, it'll ever happen to me. But yes, I think you get to say New York, best, New York Times bestselling author wow. in the same way you always get to say uh, Oscar nominee, even okay. if you didn't win and it was years ago. Good to know. So, yeah, carry that with you. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, we are always thrilled to talk to you and always thrilled when you've put out a new cookbook. And Dave has, of course, taken a deep dive and already uh, uh, started making stuff and, of course, having questions for you. A lot a lot of them, yeah. <laughs> um, but before we dig into the details, um, I want to tell you something about uh, Nancy's fancy <laughs> ice cream. <laughs> yes. Um, I have, I am three weeks out of hip replacement surgery. So I have been home and not doing a lot of, uh, cooking or baking. I've been letting friends do this, uh, for us by sending us things and letting us order in, <laughs> uh, various stuff. But two dear friends of ours shipped the gold belly, uh, Nancy's fancy 12 pack to our house. Ooh. And there were about eight different flavors in there that I had never tried before. So this has been the most thrilling, a uh, journey of discovery. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I have lost my mind over the passion fruit flavor. You know, that's what everybody, well, I agree, but I get the best response out of that one. And I think because spoonful Per spoonful, that's the right way to say it. Passion fruit definitely delivers on flavor, right? Yeah. Fully. Like, it's a punch from the first yeah. taste. And by the end of this, it's it's a little, it's like a little cup. Like, it's not a full, you know, pint. It's a, it's a one person, no sharing kind of, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and by the end of that little cup, I was like, oh. Now I need more of this now. Right now. <laughs> my hip oh. hurts. I need more now. Yeah, my hip hurts. Yeah, it's the, therapeutic. And I gotta say as well, the butterscotch, uh, the butterscotch flavor. You you personally may have cracked the code of my uh, distaste for butterscotch. Wow, and how can you dis? What don't you like about butterscotch? I have never understood why I don't like it. I have this thing. It's his cilantro. <laughs> I have this thing oh. in my life where if there's a flavor I don't like or a food I don't like, I 
command myself to keep trying it. And I command myself to keep trying it in situations where I know that it has been made by a person who knows exactly what they're doing. And but it's so, so funny because butterscotch is so, I don't know, it's so Switzerland, you know? I mean, <laughs> cilantro, um, I could... I can understand very strong flavors, but that's just such a... I know. Just sugar and butter, you know, burnt sugar and butter and cream. It may be the burnt element of the sugar because with other kinds of caramel, I'm fully on board. And so, like, I have had all kinds of butterscotch and it has never... And I've again, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. <laughs> And finally, I tasted the butterscotch Nancy's Fancy, and I thought, wait a second. Maybe this. Maybe this is the one. So uh, you personally have actually sort of helped me on this journey of uh, self-improvement with not being a baby about different things that I don't <laughs> care to eat. This kind of reminds me, Nancy, as a, as a, as a chef, as a baker, uh, are there flavors that you personally don't like, but you nonetheless know how to craft for those who do? I'm trying to think um, right off the top of my head if there's something specifically that I don't like, um, but can use, because it's hard, I find, as a cook, when there's something you really don't like, to try to work it into, uh, well, into something that you do like. I mean, an example in my book, for instance, um, was lemon bars. I always hated lemon bars, but that's not, I love lemon. It was just sure. that when that lemon custard was baked the way it baked and it became so sulfury flavored to me with the egg, the eggs in there, and then always overly sweet. I never cared for that category, like lemon bars. But it wasn't, again, it wasn't lemon that I didn't like. And then I turned it into, in my book, into a dessert that I could tolerate. I can't say it's one of my favorite in the book, but I felt that that lemon bar needed to be in the book because it was under the umbrella of classics. Um, you know, Nancy, I heard you say in this interview, and I thought it was really, really interesting that a lot of the recipes, I think you told this to Christopher Kimball from Milk Street, and you said a lot of the, I didn't know this, you said a lot of the recipes were kind of you tweaking a classic to make it tolerable to you, to make it something that you actually liked. Yeah, like an angel food cake. Okay, give me, like, just explain that to me. So, say an angel food cake, I never really understood the the love for an angel food cake. I've always looked at it as a vehicle for whipped cream and berry. <laughs> yeah. yes. And a little bit of sponginess. But to say I love angel food cake, but again, it was one of those classics that needed to be in the book. And so the way that I tweaked it so that it was tolerable, to quote you, Margaret, was <laughs> that into that just egg white base which has certainly no flavor. I added a little bit of almond extract, which um, I like paired with very bland uh, flavors. And I um, drizzled in bittersweet chocolate. So there was some 
elements of complexity. But then I took that mode. Now, ordinarily, you do not, um, you're not supposed to grease an angel food cake mold. You're supposed, and that's that, you know, that giant mold with the hole in the center, that tube in the center, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Feed on it so that after you bake it, you turn it out, and it very slowly is supposed to fall from the top of that mold because you inverted it. And by the time it hits the bottom, it will have cooled, but the sides don't collapse. Um, But what I did instead is I did grease that mold, and I dusted it with sugar um, and uh, cinnamon, and so that when it was it released, I mean, it fell quickly from that mold because it was greased, but what happened was it got a very crunchy exterior, so I gave it the texture that I felt that um, angel, angel food cake lacked, so I gave it texture, and I gave it a little complexity, and the beauty of it was that you could still use it as a vehicle for whipped cream and berries. So does it, if an angel food cake purist comes to you and says that chocolate is, you know, cheating somehow, uh, you know, do you just send them to all of the other angel food cake recipes that you don't like or encourage them to maybe expand their definition of what an angel food cake is? Right. I think I'd question, well, what do you love about angel food cake? And let's suppose they said, I love that it's spongy and I love that it has no flavor. Um, <laughs> then I would say, well. <laughs> Go with God. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I'd like to defend mine because what I also talk about in the book is that I didn't take any of these classics and I didn't feel like I went that far astray that someone would eat whatever it was that I made and say, oh, that was fine, but I'd rather have the version of that I know. You know, I felt like these were versions that hopefully people would make and eat and say, oh, that is the best in that category. Um, how many iterations would you go through for to, to get a recipe to where you want it to be? You know, countless. First of all, I never did one once, that's for sure. <laughs> once that I thought I might be able to nail within three or six turned out to be sometimes 24 times, 30 times wow. more. Yeah, I thought it was the task was going to be a lot simpler, but if you put yourself to the challenge of uh, not giving up until after you took a bite, meaning I took a bite, and I was able to say, "Okay, that's the best," I that's the best version. Then I could stop. But if I couldn't, if I honestly couldn't say, you know, I don't think it's the best version, then I would try it that one more time. And many of them. I had to step away from for a while and come back to. Um, who did you brainstorm with? Like, I'm sort of interested. I know who your team, I know who the team was working with you, but did, did it expand outside of, the, of like, um, Sherry, the pastry chef, and Liz, your uh, executive chef? Not really, because that's all that I had to also work with. There was really nobody around the restaurant, you know, which which gave me the time to, you know, to work so hard and uh, do so many of the recipes over and over and over again because 
the restaurant wasn't busy. We were still, at the beginning of the book, it was only, uh, you know, we were still in to-go mode only. And so there because were- Because of the pandemic. Because of yeah, the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's really, really interesting. Did you ever um, have a recipe, did you ever have to work up a recipe for something that you ate that you remembered, but you couldn't refer back to it? You know, you had to, you had to try to duplicate a, a work towards a flavor that you remembered. Well, there were, there were many of, of those kinds of uh, memories. Uh, one in particular, um, and you know, Margaret, you know, because we grew up together, um, and I think that our moms cooked um, very similarly, meaning they were great cooks. They knew what they liked. They weren't cooking food of our generation. Our generation was all about kind of convenience food and food that, you know, the drabbles down the street were eating, which is what I wanted to eat, uh, but my mother didn't cook. And your mom, too, was like a very eccentric uh, a cook. And I think when we look back, we really appreciate it. But one thing I know in my household is we really didn't have sweets. The, we had ice cream in the freezer for my dad, but we weren't a family where there was a dessert with every meal whatsoever. But one thing my mom bought every once in a while was Sara Lee um, spice cake. And my mom would keep it in the freezer. And I, I so clearly remember coming into the kitchen in the middle of the night and sneaking into, you know, into the freezer and peeling back that cardboard top of that of that um of that uh container of the container thank you and slicing off a very thin slice of the spice cake and that was a flavor that I definitely wanted to recreate because when I thought of childhood memories of of desserts or sweets that's what my memory was but I'm really I'm 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 really interested in the thought process. First of all, I want to say when you said Sara Lee cake, Dave White's eyes rolled into the back of his head <laughs> in a good way. There in is, a good way or a bad is, way? Oh, in ecstasy. Oh, no, there is there is nothing that makes me happier than those frozen Sara Lee cakes yeah. from from well, I was a child in the seventies. And he's still mad they got rid of the chocolate covered cheesecake bites from the nineties. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh wow. We'll have to recreate those. But the um you mentioned, you know, flavors from childhood. I have made so far, I bought a copy of the book because I thought, well, I'm just gonna buy myself a copy rather than make Alonzo give it to me for Christmas. <laughs> um time's a wasting. Yeah, I, I don't have time. TikTok. I don't have time to sit around and wait for this. <clears throat> So the first and so far only thing I have made in the kitchen since uh, my hip replacement surgery was the yellow layer cake with chocolate frosting. Oh, I want to ask you about that. Oh, I want to ask you about that. Okay. <laughs> okay. But so, before, before I close my computer screen, did you like it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. So, um, Wait, wait, wait. I want, Dave, I want you to first explain to Nancy what a cake means oh, to your dinner table, because it, it is a special absolutely. thing. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. So, I, recently, Fran Leibowitz said that favorites are for children. 
but because this is the cake of my childhood. And when I say that, I mean the Duncan Hines box version. Yeah. I didn't grow up with your mother or Margie's mother. <laughs> um, this is the cake for me. And so I knew I had to do this first. Um, we have a good, we have a, uh, we have a dear friend. He's an actor and a stand up comic. His name is Guy Branham. And he said to me once, uh, when we agreed that this was the best cake, best flavor of cake, he said, when you go to someone's home and this cake and this cake, the yellow cake with chocolate frosting is there waiting for you. Like they have it in their home as a matter of course, what they are saying to you is we have a nice life. <laughs> and I love it. So I worked through this recipe. It is wonderful. But here are my questions. What, why buttermilk instead of whole milk? And I hope that you are not uh, 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 unhappy with me asking you lots of technical questions about <laughs> recipes during this episode, because that's the question. Those are the questions I have. Um, what made buttermilk happen instead of regular whole milk? Because I've only made it before with whole milk, never buttermilk. I put buttermilk in chocolate cakes, but not in a yellow butter cake before. Okay, so I have to tell you that this was the first yellow cake I've ever made and my first yellow cake with chocolate frosting I ever made because I didn't grow up on that. I, first of all, I'm not, I'm not a cake eater. If you had asked me, you know, if you were a dessert, what would you be? I would be a tart. Mm. I wouldn't be a cake because I like the texture. I like the... Um, complexity. I love the scale that it's really low. And, and that's one thing also that you'll see is that I eliminated, except for two cakes where I felt like I couldn't, I eliminated the necessity to build a cake into three layers because I find it really tedious I, or difficult at home. I think that, well, maybe I'm jumping ahead, so maybe I should just answer your question before we go on. But to answer your question about, though, and it's funny because that yellow cake, I think, I is one of the recipes that took me the longest, meaning it was over two dozen tries. And the reason it was over two dozen tries is when you start with something so basic, with a cake that has eggs, uh, buttermilk in my case, um, sugar, uh, flavoring like, say, vanilla extract, you know, a butter or oil, um, when the when the when the um, components are so uh, are so common, then how do you make it different? You know, right. and that's what I kept tweaking. Do I want whole eggs? Do I want some egg yolks for richness? Do I want to whip egg whites, which I wanted to avoid in this book because I find that home cooks struggle with whipped egg whites a lot. Did I want sour cream or buttermilk or whole milk? I tried them all, by the way, and it was whatever one won. Then it was the leavening, and then it was, you know, from there, a few other things. But boy, and then I would think, okay, I think this is the best yellow cake I could make. And then I would try it the next day, and I would think, you know, I'm not there yet. And there would be something by the crumb, the look of the, you know, it was not only the flavor, but it was the, the look of the crumb and how that cake lasts. Because I think a yellow cake, I think a cake needs to last, that you rarely consume the whole cake in one sitting. Right. But I for buttermilk, I like, first of all, there's a reaction with buttermilk, the acid from buttermilk in the leavening. And so that's one thing as opposed to whole milk. 
And the other thing is that I liked that little bit of tang that you mm-hmm. get from buttermilk over whole milk. Yeah. Um, so that was a flavor, you know, but that was further down the line. That may have been try 14, then try 16, I went to cream and try, you know, and, and try 20, I went back to buttermilk. You know, I went like, I kept just going back and forth right. and back and forth. But the one thing that was more important to me, not more important to me, but had equal importance to me was, and I think this is key, and I want you to think about this, is that what happens with a layer cake and one that has chocolate in it is that overnight, whether it's in the refrigerator or a cool house, that chocolate hardens. And what Mm -hmm. happens when it's not fully layered together is you go to cut the cake and that frosting in so many ill-conceived versions breaks when mm-hmm. you cut it. And that was really a trick, was getting the right frosting that set up, but melded into the slice, whether it was on day one or refrigerated on day three. And the other thing I chose, because just looking at a lot of um, uh, visual uh, yellow cake with chocolate frosting is that I knew that chocolate could not be a dark chocolate, which is my preference, by the way. Right. I prefer dark chocolate to milk chocolate. But in this case, I think it had to be that lighter chocolate. Um, you know, both because it's a birthday cake and it's a birthday cake for kids who usually don't like that bittersweet chocolate. But it didn't melt like with a devil's food cake, for instance, I go straight to the dark chocolate. Right. Right. And the other thing was that I find at home, uh, and I just remember to my early struggles when I first attempted to do my first cakes, was you take a big cake, right, and you slice it into three, and then you, you stack it, and then you start to see that tower lean, and then you go <laughs> to sides, and you see it start to bulge, and you see you start with every sweep of the outside of the of the of the cake, you start to drag in the crumbs of the cake, so your frosting has all the crumbs in it, you know? Oh, yeah, and I yeah. find it's just a struggle. And I thought by giving my readers, meaning you, the, um, the uh, permission to only go two stacks and don't frost the sides, and if you have leftover frosting, serve the leftover frosting on the sides, and people can frost their own portion, you know, but I think it's so much easier to just do the two. I'll tell you something. Um, if I were a dessert, I would be a cake and I was a cake boy and now I'm a cake man. (laughs) And it is what I want to make, not just for myself. Um, but for friends, like we have friends over for dinner routinely and, and what I want for them to have is cake because it's a beautiful thing to put on the table. And even if I, 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 if I'm feeling lazy and I'll use that word on myself, just about myself, if I'm feeling lazy, I will, I will not do the sides. Right. Um, mm-hmm. that's not lazy like, by the way. I'm sorry. I, I said, that's not lazy. Cause it, all of a sudden you started I, that's, like I said, I'm putting that word on myself. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The, um, <laughs> I, I want to, like, I already know that if I attempt to frost the sides, it's going to turn out looking 
a little weird. Um, the Heidi Klum used to say on on Project Runway that the that the a fashion that someone gave to the uh, to the competition looked home sewn. My cakes look home sewn. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they are quite often. They're a little lopsided. You said they bulge. They, they, you know, tilt. The, the, they tilt. They any any number of things can make it look the opposite of what it looks like in the cookbook, you know, or, or in the magazine where it's always perfect. You know, we have two friends who are food stylists, and we know that we will never have anything in our home that looks as beautiful as the stuff that they are making for magazine editorials. Um, yeah, but that stuff also has like glue in it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, sure. But um, so uh, the, the, the thing for me is I will do what you have done in this, in this case, I'll put it just between the layers. Uh, but sometimes I want my friends to be happy with with the 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 big three layer thing that's sitting on the table, and then they all will laugh at me about how lopsided it looks, and that's kind of fun too. <laughs> Conversation piece. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I exactly understand what you're saying. Um, I, I uh, have a question about technique for this particular cake as well. Uh, quite often in a cake recipe. I'll see that the directions involve keeping the batter just moistened, not turned into a smooth, creamy batter. Now, I did it the way you instruct, and I've done this before with other recipes, but it always makes me nervous because it has been hammered into my head, not to what other people refer to as overmixing the batter. It works out perfectly here with your recipe, but can you explain the difference between these two methods because yours involves adding the butter to the flour and then adding the liquid until it is smooth and creamy. Those are the, those, those are the exact words in the, in the recipe. And every time I hear, you know, I shouldn't say every time, but quite often I hear don't make it smooth and creamy, make it just mixed. Don't overbeat. Um, can you talk about the difference between those two methods? Well, you know, uh, what certain things um, I don't over mix or incorporate because I'm going to further incorporate it. Like let's suppose I'm going to be then at the end I'm going to be stirring a nut, so it doesn't have to be completely incorporated because then I'm over incorporating, right? Yeah. Or um, you're going to be adding egg whites anyway or something else. Um, in this case, um, that that notion of don't overmix, what they're talking about is ordinarily the flour, that that you want to be careful not to uh, overwork the flour because that can toughen, you know, that the mixture will, right. uh, will uh, it'll, it'll toughen. In this case, it's really not mixed long enough that it really, I didn't find that it affected the texture of the cake. Right. Next question. <laughs> I made the banana bread yeah. as well. And I'm sorry, I'm scrolling up to my to the notes. Nancy, I, took about I this. Uh, Dave was one of your early testers. I don't know if you knew that. Yes, I remember that. That was before it was a book. Yeah. yeah. 
I have never worked with so many bananas <laughs> for a banana bread. And obviously, you know, it's it's a cake, right? You said right. it's a cake. It's Everyone knows it's a cake. It's just why we put it in a loaf pan, I've never understood, but people do. I have never worked with so many bananas for a banana bread slash cake in my life. And I have never shingled them before. And on top, because it had never occurred to me before to put any bananas on top of the exposed of, to the yeah exposed to the elements yeah um so during this process i got to say it was a bit vexing because i kept thinking to myself you know here i am I'm, I'm always trying to make it look like the picture right and i kept thinking i'm just going to screw this up like i'm not cutting them right i'm not slicing them properly I'm trying to overlap them, but it looks weird and lumpy. So then I put them side by side and I thought, am I doing it wrong? Is Nancy going to be mad at me? (laughs) (laughs) And then it all turned out so perfectly. I have made easier versions than this, but this one is worth the time and the effort because it has got so much banana in it inside and out. Uh, I will never go back <laughs> to the old way. Oh, well, that, you know, see, those are the kinds of things that really make me feel like I did my job correctly when you say something like that. Like, it's either worth the effort, but also that it really is, again, hopefully the best banana cake bread you've ever had. It is. And what I was making it, and Alonzo walked in the kitchen. He's like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I was like, I'm doing a lot right now. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> um, now, initially, uh, Margie brought me the, the, the banana bread recipe and the cornbread recipe. But because I was so preoccupied with this upcoming surgery that I felt like I missed my window on the cornbread and I didn't do it because – the recipe calls for fresh corn on the cob. Right. It is currently out of season. And so I'm wondering if I want to make the cornbread in December, can I? Well, <laughs> should you or can you? You should not. Can't You can, though. I, can you find out-of-season corn even? But it's. Is there I'm a sure. I'm sure Target has corn on the cob. Actually, actually D- Dave, I've seen um, corn on the cob at the farmers market still, and I don't know yes. why. It must be. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. It must be. And I would grab it because I, you know, I think that uh, when uh, when people ask me what recipe um, am I the most proud of, the two recipes I'm the most proud of, I think, are the carrot cake and the cornbread. Both of them because they finally um, solved my, not dislike, but my question of the flavor of both of those. So cornbread, now, I didn't grow up. I keep saying I didn't grow up, I didn't grow up, I didn't grow up. But I didn't grow up. Cornbread was not part of my family's repertoire. I never had it. Um, I'm not from the South. I don't even know really what it goes with. And I never, I just expected because of the name that it was supposed to taste like corn. I know everybody put cornmeal yeah. in it. Um, the kinds that I had it, you know, uh, at 
at church picnics and at you know barbecue joints. They are sweet. They taste more like a cake than a bread. Um, but they never tasted like corn. And, and people would put, you know, they would say, well, I make my cornbread with whole kernels of corn. And I'm like, wow, when I eat a corn, piece of cornbread that has a whole kernel of corn, I feel like I want to spit it out. It always feels like a mistake. <laughs> it doesn't belong there. Like, oh, there's something in my cornbread. <laughs> um, foreign object. A foreign object, yeah. And, uh, and so I would I wanted to put a cornbread in this book, it had to be not only the best version, but I really wanted to make it taste like corn. And so what I did with that was, uh, um, I, I in my uh, two books ago or something, I did have a cornbread in, and I thought I was genius because I took a corn creamer, that's a Japanese uh, sort of stainless, or mine's uh-huh. a stainless steel, Long. I bought one. Oh, you bought one. Great. And what it yeah. does is it actually slashes the corn and causes it the 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 chopped up pieces of corn to release all of that milkiness that's in corn. Now, what I always did is I added that slashed up corn back into my cornbread, and I didn't have the need to spit it out because it was more an integral part of that of that. Mm. Uh, cornbread rather than chunks of things that you want to spit out. But I always discarded that milkiness that that was released because as a baker, I would know you can't add all that liquid back into a batter because it's going to make the batter really heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the first thing I did for this one when I was trying out is I thought maybe if I added a can of creamed corn to my cornbread then it would taste really corny. So I went and I went to Whole Foods, so I was sure that I didn't uh, open up a can of cream corn that had a lot of, uh, you know, stabilizers and a lot of additives. But I still opened it up. I took one look at it, and I'm like, "Ah, I can't do this. (laughs) I thought, well, look, maybe I'll cream my corn like I've always have. I will strain it. I'll take that liquid and I'll reduce it to like just an essence. Maybe if I, you know, reduced it down to a tablespoon, it would be a tablespoon full of um, of an extract, right? So I strained it. I put it in a little saute pan. I brought it up to temperature. And as soon as it warmed up, it immediately turned into a corn pudding. It's like, well, of course, that's, you know, cornstarch, you know. Right. And I cooled that, and I added that back into the cornbread. And I got to tell you, the flavor of this new improved version is mind blowing. I think. And then to top that off, I let the cornbread. I still, you know, baked it in a in a cast iron skillet like I had done in the past. But I let it cool a little, and then I slathered on a honey butter that I had made with. Um, honey and butter and a little bit of chili flakes. And I slathered a generous amount on so it didn't quite melt into the cornbread and then sprinkled it with flaky sea salt and some some thyme leaves, fresh thyme leaves. And I really think that it's a version to make. Um, and since Margaret has seen them in the farmer's market, I would make that next on my list because you're not going to see it that much longer. Okay. 
But I think it's worth making, and I think that um, you might say, just like you did in the banana bread, okay, I'm going to throw all my old cornbread recipes away. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Nance, I want to switch topics just slightly, which is um, I wanted to talk about things that are really easy in the book <laughs> because I, Dave makes a lot of desserts. You know, as you know, I don't bake very much. But last year, when I went to visit my in-laws for Christmas in London, you suggested that I get pack a, a, a I guess, a, a tiny cake tin, and it had like 24 really like quarter-sized um, bunt cakes, like the size of a quarter. And then you said to bring your olive oil cake recipe. And, you know... It was so easy and such an incredible hit. <laughs> and um, I just, I wanted to recommend to listeners that they try, if they don't bake a lot, to try that recipe. But I'm also interested in other recipes that are uh, similar in terms of like, you cannot screw it up. Hello? You know, I forgot that I had, <laughs> can you hear me? Hello? Yeah, 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 I didn't yeah. hear you for a second. Couldn't hear you for a second. Okay, yeah. So you know, I forgot that I had given you that recipe because when you when you first uh, said I'd love to switch gears and talk about some of the really simple ones, it's like okay, the olive oil cake. You cannot go wrong with there. You know, if you can make a pancake, meaning that you know how to dump dry ingredients into a large bowl, make a well pour in the liquids, and slowly drag in the flour. Um, if you can make a pancake, you can make these olive oil cakes. And what's great about them is that the batter keeps, you know, certainly up to a week or more. Um, the cakes themselves, when you bake them, they stay for a, a few days because there's so much olive oil in them, they stay so uh, moist. But that, those are such a crowd pleaser and easy easy to make. I forgot about the idea that I did save some of the batter and made, and made more two days later. And it was, you know, still incredibly delicious, you know. But Nancy, yep. is there another is there another recipe that that's that simple because you know, it's the holidays and and it's really fun to bring something that people will like to a party, but I, like I said, I don't I don't I didn't know that I had the skills you know, and that was really satisfying for me. Well, I mean, I, I do think the cookies are pretty straightforward. You know, I mean, again, not, you don't need a technical skill. It, it helps to have, um, it helps to have a uh, freestanding mixer, you know, to cream the butter, but you could have a handheld one, or you really could do them just with softened butter in a bowl. Um, super easy. I think, like, say, holiday-ish, um, the, um, the, the, uh, the ground nut cookies that are, uh, finished with tossing them in a lot of powdered sugar sort of has that holiday look to them. Very, very, uh, very simple. You don't even need a mixer for those, I would say. What about the Kentucky are, butter cake? The Kentucky butter cake is also, that was a... 1970 Pillsbury Blue Ribbon winner. Hmm. 
competition, and it's not my recipe, and um, that's a great suggestion as well. I mean, you do need a mixer, but that's about all, and you need like five ingredients, I think, and it's one of the most delicious. You know, when you think of your yellow cake with chocolate frosting, if you want to just make the simplest of all Bundt cakes, that Kentucky butter cake definitely is a good answer as well. I think you also describe the glaze as like the glaze of a glazed donut. Well, I describe it that way because it's what the texture that the glaze kind of gives or lends to a donut, which is just kind of soft. You know, it has that the thin layer of that kind of crackle, and that's what this does as well. So, Nancy, I'm I'm just curious about this latest book in the context of your work so far. This is your 11th cookbook, yes. and about half of them have been specifically tied to Moza and Kispaka and previous restaurants that you've had. I'm just curious, what was the impetus that right now you really wanted to put out this dessert cookbook? I think it was sort of not selfish, but I sort of recognized the the necessity for a book like this if you uh, if you trust someone like me and in my taste and when I say something's good. And what I'm saying, the reason of the necessity, it's that the good and the bad of the Google now is that the good is, is that you can find anything in the world that you need. The bad is, is that when you want to make or bake something really simple, let's say a peanut butter cookie. So you look online for peanut butter cookie, and uh, and there will be a suggestion for like 10,000 peanut butter cookies. And so you right. think, where do I start? I mean, in the good old days when I was baking, I would say, I want to make a peanut butter cookie. And I would look on my bookshelf, and I would think about who I thought was my favorite baker in the time. And I would pull that book down and look up to see if they had a peanut butter cookie. But now the, you know, the resources are unlimited. And so what do you do then? So I thought, you know... The book that I would really want would be the recipes that had all the th classics, the things that I really wanted to make and are easy to make at home, um, but with, with someone telling me this is the one you should make or this is the version you should make. I love that because my I think for my limited you know work as an author, my idea has always been I'm writing this book because I want this book to exist. Yeah, and nobody yeah, else wrote it first. I mean, that's definitely why I did my bread book, the the bread book years and years ago. Is that when I when I wrote that there weren't the bread books. I mean, now there are so many bread books mm. on the you know on the shelves now, but at that time there weren't, and I'm like. This book needs to exist. Somebody needs to know how to make a sourdough loaf. And to your point about there being 10,000 peanut butter cookie recipes, um, it becomes like sifting through nonsense Yeah, to get to something decent. And I've, I've, I've come to the place where if I, if I Google what can I do with these ingredients that I have, and I come up with, if I come up against a peanut butter cookie recipe from someone that I've never heard of before, my first thought is, I don't know you. <laughs> I, I don't, do you even know what you're talking about? Like, and so it helps someone like me who is always trying to get, like I've always described myself as 
the half-assed home cook. Like, and that is, that is the level of skill set that I think I have. Um, but when I, when I need a recipe, I need to go to someone I already know is a, a, a pro <laughs> at what they've done and, and can give it to me straight, even if it's not maybe the easiest thing in the world. Speaking of the peanut butter cookie recipe, we have a question from a listener who's also a friend of ours. Uh, our friend Paul Tran is an astonishingly good baker. And he recently moved to England and he texted me today and said, can you ask Nancy what kind of peanut butter I'm supposed to use in the peanut butter cookie? Because because the the, the peanut butter in the UK is weird and uh, he wants to know what to do. So, you know, I have said always with peanut butter cookies that the most generic is, is really the best, you know? So... Um, I find that, you know, on the super, the Skippies, the GIFs, the Laura Scudders of the world, uh-huh. they really do their job. Cool. But uh, do you, I mean, what is, is there an ingredient or in or missing from UK peanut butter? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. My experience with it is decades old, but oh. I've recently heard from other people. Americans over there who've said, yeah, it's not the same. I'm sure if he goes to Harrods, he can find an no, insanely yeah. uh, priced jar of Jif. I was going to say, Nancy, I, I, I don't know if you've come across these stores in London, you know, because she has a pizzeria there. Uh-huh. But there are stores that just cater to selling American foods. And um, I know because my nephew used to always go buy root beer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there are actual stores that you can go to where you can get yeah or whatever. Right. Um. I would like to go back to cake for just a moment, <laughs> if we can. <laughs> um, I have not yet tried the carrot cake uh, recipe, but I'm going to because I, I love to make You like it. carrot cake? Uh, I love carrot cake. I love carrot cake, too. And I have been, for the past several years, I have been obsessed with the mystery of Toni Morrison's carrot cake. Oh, and what is that? Well... In the documentary about Toni Morrison's life before she passed away, she talked about how, and she was very confident, and I loved this moment in the in the film. She said, "I make the best carrot cake," <laughs> and and everyone agrees. Everyone who has tasted Toni Morrison's carrot cake uh, agrees she makes the best carrot cake. Wow! And then she would not tell anyone in the documentary what made her carrot sure cake so good. That. Her hint was <laughs> her hint was more carrots than you think. And reading through your carrot cake recipe and coming across the idea of roasted carrot puree, yeah, which funny. necessarily incorporates more carrots than you'd think yeah. without making it feel like you're just munching on a bunch of like grated carrots. I again I haven't tried your recipe yet, but I you may have cracked the code of Toni Morrison's carrot cake. That's funny. Well, so, you know, I, and I think what's funny about it, and when you remember I had said a little earlier, the two things that I feel like are the, my biggest accomplishments, one being that corn muffin because of, or corn cornbread, and I also have a corn muffin, by the way, and I do the same thing, that adding of that, of that um, corn pudding that you make from the, from the liquid. The carrot cake, it's the same thing. 
You can add more. I don't care how many grated carrots you add to a carrot cake. It's not going to give it more carrot flavor. You know, right. the carrot cake, was, it was the same thing. It's like, I love the carrot cake, but what do I love about it? Do I love the texture? Because it's made with an oil-based cake, right? Yeah. I mean, I tried butter with the, you know, my new version, everything. Nope, oil is really the only way to go. So I love the oil. I love the spices, I guess. I love the texture. Um, I love the idea that I'm kind of eating healthy when I eat my carrot cake. <laughs> a little bit of vegetable, right? But was I really getting the flavor of carrots? And that roasted carrot brings it into the idea that, the yes, there is carrot flavor. And why did nobody ever think of that before? Yeah. Yeah, that's, I, I, I feel like that when anytime there's an ingredient in a recipe um, and I see that it's of, of just basically a scant amount of that ingredient, I think, why, why did you, well, why bother? Exactly. Why, you know, why can't, why can't there be more so I can taste it? Well, you know, that's so funny because as soon as the book was released, which was, I forget, November 14th or whatever, the first um, sort of, uh, disgruntled buyer wrote to the uh, publisher and said, I'm going to make those peanut butter cookies. And there's clearly a problem with it because there are two tablespoons of vanilla extract in it. And I said, well, that is not a mistake. And to your point, when recipes are written and they say, and add a half a teaspoon of vanilla extract, I am sorry. Yeah. Why bother adding a half a teaspoon of Vanilla extract, I don't care how discerning your palate is, you are not going to taste a half a teaspoon of vanilla extract, especially if you measure it in a measuring spoon and half of it gets stuck in the spoon anyway, you know? <laughs> you just don't. And so I don't think any recipe in this book has less than a tablespoon and some more. Because if you're going to add it, at least have a hint of a flavor of it. What's the difference between vanilla extract and vanilla bean paste? I've been curious about this recently. So one of one of them is the viscosity. You know, the vanilla bean paste is clearly a vanilla, you know, it, right. it's a stickier. But the other thing is that it's full of all of the um of the of the seeds of the vanilla pod mm -hmm. that you get from a whole vanilla bean. And so I think it has a much more flavorful uh mm -hmm. And also, you see those flecks, right? And, and it's more expensive. Interchangeably. Well, I say yes, you know, because not everybody can find vanilla bean paste, has vanilla bean paste, or wants to pay the extra price of vanilla bean paste. Right. right. Um. So I, uh, we're, since we're on the the, the cookies. Alonzo is the cookie man of the house. He <laughs> bakes the cookies. Um, but we both had a question about the chocolate chunk uh, cookie recipe, which he's about to try. There has been, I have seen, just in my, you know, going to the grocery store and looking at recipes over the past 10 plus years, a move away from chips to chunks, like get the bar, chop it up, Put that in instead of chocolate chips, um, and I and this is happening in your in your 
uh, recipe here as well for the chocolate chunk cookies. Why do you recommend that versus the chip? Uh, first of it, many reasons. Um, one, and by the way, I've been that convert for years and, you know, in my uh-huh. whole baking career, I think. One is you um, um, first visually, okay, I really don't like the look of that chocolate chip that's in it. It looked like some um, small animal left some remains <laughs> near <laughs> But besides visually, I think that um, it gives you the um, capability of using a much better chocolate if you buy um, it in, you know, in, in, in bar form or in chunk form. It's a better chocolate. You know, the ones that we had to use before, those semi-sweet chips were really an inferior chocolate that also melted very strangely. Um, But but then by chopping that chocolate up, you're giving a whole range of sizes too, which makes it visually much more appealing. So I would say visually and flavor-wise, it makes a lot more sense. I've also encountered recipes not for cookies, but for things like uh, shakes, where they say that the chips will give you a sort of a waxy yeah. uh, residue that you're not going to get. And I, I was reminded of my my nephew, who's a baker, is always very insistent about grating his own cheese because he think, he says when you buy grated cheese in the grocery store that it's been treated with something to make it not clump up and stick together. Yeah. That's actually kind of also waxy and gross. Yeah. I think it's also that um, grated cheese is they don't that I could be wrong. I know this is true with grated parm that um, it's the ends. It's the parts that they can't use. And so they save it all. Mm. So you're getting the icky icky corners (laughs) that they're going to grate up for you. And then it's going to sit on a shelf for a really long time. So it's not only the best part of the parm, it's really old. So it's the same idea. Am I right, Nance? Yes. And also I would say that green can... <laughs> that was not even part of the conversation. <laughs> I have, I have an affection for what's in that green can because, again, I grew up in a house where nobody cooked anything really. Um, so I get we're about to wrap up here, right? Yes, we need to let Nancy uh, get out. Before we go, we need to give a shout out to Anne Fishbine, great yes. Anne Fishbine, who took I the photos. I agree. What do you uh, think about those photos? She's so cool and she's so good at what she does. Yeah. Uh, wanted to say that to her. But I, I also I just want to talk about this book in particular, uh, me as a reader and as someone who's always trying to do better in the kitchen. I have a few cookbooks in my on my shelf that feel well beyond my skill set and they taunt me because I... I'm afraid to touch them because I've gone through them a few times and thought, I can't do this. You know, yours challenge me in ways that I am grateful for because they are at a level of, I used to be a school teacher and and the, the pedagogical thing is comprehensible input. Like what can this person do? What does this person know? Now, what can we force them to try to do next? And so your books, and I own several of your books, they make me want to practice the thing and be okay with failing 
until I get it right, whatever it is. Um, now, obviously, sidebar, I'm also grateful that I can just cry out, Margie, will you ask me and see why I'm screwing this up? Which is a privilege I know that most people do not have. But what I love most about your books is they're good to read. So many of them are not. I learn just from descriptions of the why before I even get to the how of it. Um, so I'll be reading through a recipe and deciding, can I do this? Am I capable of this? Is there some skill I don't have yet that, I, that I've never been able to get quite right? Is this too much for me right now? And I always think, well, I'll just do it. And in time, I'll figure it out. So you set a bar for home cooks that we can all reach a little bit, <laughs> I think. And it makes us want to reach a little higher. And so that's what I love about this book and what I love about the other books that you've given us in the past. So thank you. For thank that. you. I, uh, you know, I enjoy the writing of, or, you know, I look at, I'm not the writer of any of my cookbooks and, and luckily the publisher has always allowed me to put the writer on the, on the cover because I think that's where the writer uh, belongs, you know. Carolyn Carreno. Yeah, Carolyn Carreno relies so heavily on the writer because that's a really hard part. But she does get um, the way that I talk and what the things that I think are important to talk about. But I think that, you know, food, I've always said, tastes better with a story. Yeah. And that's what I try to give with each of these recipes because each of them come from a story. You know, whether it's who inspired it, um, why I wanted to do it, why I never liked it in the past, you know, all those things. I think once you get down to making it, um, just kind of makes it either more intriguing or kind of makes it more inviting. Like, wow, that sounds like I would like to be a part of that story. Exactly. Nancy, thank you so much for taking time out to talk thank to us. Thank you. It's we, been so fun. Uh, why is this taking for this so long for me to be on your podcast? What fun? Oh, well, you know we're real picky around here. <laughs> <laughs> Please, you that the, we are that we're in the same time zone is very exciting right now. So we had to uh, strike while the iron was hot. Yeah, when you weren't in like Singapore or Italy <laughs> or exactly Lanai. So hey, the book is the cookie that changed my life. Own it, give it this holiday season. Let it change yours. Uh, thank everybody for listening, Margie. As always, thank you for for being here. And uh, hey, if you want more linoleum knife and fork in your life go to patreon.com slash linoleum knife this is a show we do on the regular for our subscribers uh, as we describe it it is a food podcast hosted by two film critics and uh, this is about the highest level of qualified food discussion we've ever had on this program <laughs> but we'll, we give it our best shot every week anyway uh, until next time eat them up yum <laughs>